0: Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. If you're able to, would you join me in standing as we read God's Word together? Today's reading from scripture is from Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong." May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated.
1: There was a… Uh, there's been a lot of situations the last uh, 10 years or so of, of people losing their jobs, their lives, because they said something on social media that somebody found. And uh, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, has actually looked a lot and written a lot extensively on a lot of these issues. And there was one uh, about a year and a half ago where I was like a TV news anchor, I think in the middle of the country, who sort of lost her job, lost everything because of uh, a situation like this. And what she said uh, in part of her repentance or her longing for her life back, is she just said, you know, social media brings out the worst in us. Because what had happened is uh, she had said some comments in a conversation, in an argument, in a dialogue online, and uh, some things that were racist, things that were just uh, definitely not okay to say. But she just said, you know, social media brings out the worst in us. And uh, David Brooks, commenting on this, he said, well, he, and, and this guy has done a lot of work going after the crowds that go after people like this. But he said, hold on, He's like, this is such an easy excuse and a way out that's not a valid way out. Because what what that comment assumes, like social media brings out the worst in us, is that you're like backed into a corner and have no other options when that happens. And when he said, actually, when you get into an argument, what comes out of you in an argument is something that was already deeply, profoundly in you before the argument. So that what an argument does is it doesn't force you to say something that you would never believe, it just reveals something that's very core and essential to who you are. And what Brooks said is actually, if you want to get to know somebody, get into an argument with them. And all of us who are married are like, amen. <laughs> Look, we are looking at the gospel of Mark and the gospels around to just see Jesus. To maybe for the first time get to know him, maybe for a renewing time to get to know him. And there's maybe no more profound way to see him and to get to know him than in the midst of his arguments. This passage that we're given right here it is in the midst of several arguments where people just have these questions for Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And this one to me is particularly profound and personally, yeah, helpful for so many things about getting to know and why I trust Jesus. So let's look at this argument and this question. Just with two simple headings. One, a question that tells us something really about us. And two, an answer that tells us about Jesus. Very simple. First, the question that tells us something about us. Okay, what is this question what is it all about? Um, well, the background here is that the Sadducees are referring to something known as leveret marriage. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 25, uh, 5, uh, here's what it says. Uh, This is a law given to Israel. If a brother dwells together, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. Now, we can interpret that in a lot of ways, but that's actually a very helpful, loving law given to Israel in that time to protect women from something socially destructive for them. So what often would happen is um, if a woman lost her husband and she didn't have any children, she was socially dead. She had no way of making money because she couldn't uh, labor. She had no way of getting offspring, which meant her future inheritance or anything like that. And so what the law said is, hey, if this woman loses her husband, and there are other brothers in the family, one of those brothers has to take her on and care for her and come married to her. And so, what the law does is it makes sure that a woman never could lose her husband and lose all of her life and everything around her. It's a very loving law. So, what the Sadducees do is they come to Jesus with this law, and they say, okay, Jesus, let's say a brother… uh, is married to a woman, he dies, and then the next day, uh, someone, you know, this brother marries her, and then he gets run over by a car, and then the next brother comes along, and then he actually gets sick uh, and dies, but then the next brother comes, uh, but he, you know, has all sorts of other problems and passes away another way, and then there's like seven of them, and they're all married to the same woman. When heaven comes, who's gonna be her husband? And it's, it's actually a very troubling question, because if Jesus starts going down the line and saying, well, uh, the, the first one, or no, 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 the second one, or the third one, what's going to happen is he's going to seem like a fool in front of these Sadducees and get trapped, and he's going to uh, he's gonna lose the crowds. On the other hand, if he caves in and just says, you know what, uh, that's actually a hard question, we don't know what to do with that, what happens then is all of the Pharisees and all of the people who have been following him, he's going to lose them because he's going to go against all of the teaching he's already taught on the kingdom of God. So it feels like if he goes this way, he loses this crowd. If he goes this way, he loses this crowd. Now, before we get into how Jesus answers the question and what he does with this, let's stop for a second and just meditate on this question of these people coming to Jesus and trying to trap him. Now, the Sadducees are the ones asking this. Now, who are the Sadducees? Well, when Rome took over uh, Israel, what happened is the people of Israel politically responded in one of four ways. One group was the Essenes, and they were like, peace out, we're going to the country. And they started their own little thing and moved way out and had nothing to do with Rome. The second group that uh, responded differently was the Zealots. They believed that this Roman occupation was evil and terrible and there was somebody who could come and overthrow it. So every couple of years, there would be somebody who would start some sort of revolution and they would hope that this person would be their king and the Messiah. Another group that responded was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were sort of like the the moderate middle class. They wanted to keep uh, ancient Israel law and and keep much of Israel society while also sort of keeping a little bit in step with the Roman culture so as to not lose all the power and um, comfortable life that they did have. The other group that responded were the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the kind of group who who wanted to keep their, their Israelite identity, but also very much wanted to make their way up into the Roman aristocracy. So what that meant is that they were willing to sacrifice beliefs and things along the way that would help them move up that social ladder. And one of the key ones that they did not hold on to was the belief of the resurrection. So for example, in uh, Acts 23, 8, it says this, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now, why were they so afraid of the belief in the resurrection? Well, they were afraid of the belief in the resurrection because anyone around in the Roman Empire who heard of resurrection felt like someone who believed in that was a threat to their rule. Because if you believe that you you could die and then come back to life in the next life, then that means you're willing to go through anything for your beliefs. And that's a threat always to Roman rule. So the Sadducees said, hey, we, we don't actually believe that. We're not for that. And so they want to come And they want to put this question on Jesus to both expose Him and also prove their place in the Roman Empire. Now, before we get into Jesus' answer and that this is a person who actually has a brilliant way of dialoguing with human beings, let's just stop for just a minute and meditate on the idea that this man also they're talking to, the Bible believes, is the creator of all things. And the Lord of the universe and they're putting him on the dock and asking him this kind of trapping question because it's a power grab. Um, I remember, uh, this was like a decade ago, I was at a big uh, concert at a huge arena uh, like the Rose Bowl, and, and there's just, I mean, 80,000 of us in this concert, and uh, I'm in the middle of the general admission crowd with some people, and close enough like, that I can, I can hear the band even talk without their microphone, and at one point... They're playing a song and they just look at the crowd and say, sing this with us. And they start singing this old song that they hadn't sung in a long time. And I remember this guy behind me just responding and going, "Uh, yeah, I'll sing. I'll sing along when you play a song that I want to hear. And I remember like just kind of pausing and going, okay, chief, um, 80,000 people here. We're all here to hear them but you're here in the middle of all of this crowd and they're like, play me a song I want to hear and then I'll participate along. Now, the comedy of that moment is unique, but the impulse is not. Because any time that we have a question for God that really puts him on the dock, here's what we're saying. In the midst of this world that you're running, Make it around my tastes. Look, if you're skeptical right now, I know you have some sort of question. It's some sort of issue that's out there that says, "I, I, I'm close to belief, or I want to believe, but blank." But the Bible's teaching on this, or but I see Christians do this, or what? What? What happens? You know, with suffering? Or what happens with people on the other side of the world who've never heard of these things? Those kinds of questions, let me ask you just for 30 seconds, look at me. Why is that your question? Why, why is that particular thing your question? And the reason I'm pressing you to think about that is because there's a part of me that thinks, if you got that answered, would you really believe? would you really go, he really is the king? Or would you just move on to the next question that you have that he's got to answer in order for you to believe? Because here's what I'm saying, the questions that we have don't so much reveal about God and the universe and about what he really has prescribed for things. It reveals so much about us that we are people in a concert sitting there in God's world and saying, make it right for me. Explain it clearly for me. Because your question so much much is just your way of seeing through the thing that you never want to see. And if you begin to see through everything and you've got an explanation or a caveat or a way out of every possible way that God has called you into fellowship with Him and you want to see through everything, you see as Lewis says, you finally get to the point where you see nothing. And everything you're living on in life is a myth and a fairy tale outside of the the denial that there really may be a God and that's not a fairy tale. The, The Sadducees question puts us all in this moment right now where we really have to put our hands down and realize that all the questions that we have for God in the dock are about our desire for having power and comfort in life. And every time that that's threatened, if that is on the line, we've got a question for him. But secondly, what does Jesus do with that? How does he answer that? Because his, his, his answer is really off the map. That last verse uh, that I wanted us to read from Matthew 22, Matthew's account of this, says that when Jesus answered this, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching and they dared not ask him any more questions. Now, the reason that that is profound to me is because I don't typically read what Jesus says here and see uh, what he unpacks and I'm not blown away by it. But I think if you dive into it, you begin to see what the crowd said, because he, he really says three things in this answer that just blows their maps off. He says, uh, he says, No. He says, You don't know the scriptures, and he says, You don't know the power of God. Here's what I mean: he says no. So when they ask him this question about leverage marriage, this is what Jesus says in verse 24: Is this not the reason you are wrong? So, that whole phrase, is this not the reason you're wrong, is one Greek word where Jesus basically says, no. They say, Jesus, which, which wife, excuse me, which husband is going to be married to this woman? Because there's going to be seven of them, and they're all going to be there, and it's going to be heaven, and she's going to be wondering, which one does she spend forever with? And Jesus just looks at them, and he just says, No. Now, why in the world is he doing this? Well, here's what happened. So right before this, if you look in Mark chapter 12 and in Matthew 22 in the same case, you have these Pharisees right before them had just asked Jesus a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And what the Pharisees mean is is they basically say, hey, are you going to start a revolution with this tax thing? And when Jesus shoots down their answer... The Sadducees look and they say, okay, these people who we hate and are kind of getting in our way for making social progress in the Roman Empire, the Pharisees, Jesus is not on their team. He's not for them. He's not with them. Let's ask him a question to see if he's on our team and he's with us. So they put this question out to see if he buys into the same answers and Jesus just looks at them and he just says, no, I'm not. Now, what do we learn here? Jesus is right away telling us that I'm not like you, and I'm not like you. And the reason he needs to tell this is because almost everybody who comes to Jesus, look, you never come with a blank slate. You never come with a whiteboard that's been totally erased. You never come with a non-agenda to Jesus. What we almost always do is we come right away and we say, here's how I like life. Here's how I need life to go. Here's what will give me power and comfort. Do you fit in to this agenda? And what Jesus just basically says right away is, he says, no. Now, sit on this for a second because um, let's just be frank. Um, in the last couple years, what are the things that uh, make you turn off the news? or make you enraged online, or make you concerned about the future? Things like masks, vaccines, uh, social justice, should we or should we not do it? To what degree should we do it? Sexuality and gender, how do we process this? How do we think about this? All of you have very intense opinions about those things. And here's the funny thing, in this, in this little room, you know, forget, forget Redondo Beach, forget LA County, in this little room, almost none of you think exactly like the other person. In fact, many of you disagree with even your spouse a little bit on some of these things. Now, if Jesus has never said no to you in any of those things, you know what that means? You have a quiet little confidence that you're the one in this room who's right. And everyone else is wrong. And God 100% stamps and endorses how you think about those things. And Jesus just comes along and says, my friend, no. Look, has Jesus ever offended you? Has he ever said no to you in his word in a way that makes you just want to shut his, shut his word? That makes you want to have clenched fists in a way that makes you almost tempted to want to walk away for a day or two? Because if he never has, you probably never met him. Look, if Jesus says something to you and right away he's the best, you're probably not listening. Because what you're probably doing is listening to something that you wanted to hear and how you thought life should go, and you heard one little thing and jumped on it and said, ah, Jesus is just like the Jesus I always wanted. But if he's also, if he's never offended you, and you've been around this for a long time, I'm wondering if you've ever read or meditated on some of these things. Because there's no way anybody navigates how Jesus views sexuality, how Jesus views loving your enemies, how Jesus views, views hypocrisy, how He views your attitude to authorities, how He views how you should give things away, how He views how you should sacrifice, how He views how you should not be codependent, how He views how you should be dependent on the Lord. Go down the list. There's no way you ever read Him on every single thing and think, this is always what I wanted God to tell me. At some point, your soul rubs up against it and just says, I don't know how to do with this. And if you've ever had that moment, you've met Jesus. Because he's, he's not like this side or this side. He's not like anybody. And he comes right away to these people with this question and just says, no. But then he says, but you don't know the scriptures. And this is where he really begins to destroy their argument, because this is really profound. Look, the Sadducees uh, did not recognize the full Old Testament. So, if, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know, there's different, like, literary genres. Uh, there's the Psalms. There's the, uh, the prophets. Uh, there's some of the poetry books and wisdom books. And then there's the ancient um, Pentateuch. Which sort of has the early five books of, of of Israel's wandering in the desert, and those were the only five books that the Sadducees believed. They didn't believe the rest of the Old Testament. So when when they come to Jesus and they say, "Hey, you know, what's is there really a heaven? What's this going to be like?" Here's what Jesus says: uh, "You don't know the Bible." He quotes Exodus three six, which is a place where Jesus, or excuse me, where Moses was in the middle of the desert, and God meets him and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and have my people released. And he says, here's what you're going to do, and here's what you're going to say. And uh, Moses says, you know, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them I am who I am. He says, Moses, I am the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel. What Jesus does is he takes a scripture that they themselves would have believed that would have been on their terms, what they would have held as authoritative and trustworthy, and he says, even your scriptures argue against you. Now, how do they do that? Well, when he, when he says, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, he's drawing out this Old Testament principle of personal relationship. That is so profound. When he says, I am the God of Abraham. Look, he's saying, I I am not some just abstract deity. I am not just somebody who uh, makes stars, makes universes, and says, bow down to me. He's saying, I am a personal God. Which means, I don't just want to be the God or a God. I want to be Alex's God. Now, anything that you ever take and put your name on is not something of random importance. You, you, you don't inscribe your name, you know, just on a, like a, a, a random eraser in your house or scotch tape. Make sure you don't lose that. What you do is, is my wife writes it on every single piece of our children's clothes because they're going to lose that. You know, anything that we're, you're afraid of value, of importance, that you want people to know, this is mine, you may not take it. God is saying, I want you to know that that's how I feel about you, and that that's my relationship with you. Look, a, a lot of you believe in a God, but He wants you to believe in a personal God. That it's not just a God; it's my God. It's my Savior. And He says, of this personal nature, there is a kind of relationship that will make it even more personal, and that's it's, it's ongoing. Because what He says is, this relationship that I want to establish you will never end. He says, "I am the God not I was the God of Abraham." He says, "I am the God of Abraham." Not, I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Jacob. Look, if you ever have a relationship with somebody, oh, he's my friend, or that's my child, or this is my spouse, you never want to get to the point where you say, they were my friend, or that was my child. You always want it to be ongoing. And what Jesus says here is that this personal God, when you get into a relationship with him, it never ends. When I was uh, in Pennsylvania doing ministry, before I came here on the campus of Penn State University, there was this famous guy called the Willard Preacher. He would stand outside the Willard building every day from like 1 to one fifty, And he would just stand out there and walk back and forth. And, and preach. And almost every single time, what he would basically say, in a nutshell, is, um, hey, eternity's coming. The afterlife is coming. You better repent. You better change. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you repent and change and know this God you will definitely know eternity is coming. Because when you get to know him and to see how personal and powerful and loving this relationship is, you know it's to a degree, it will never have an ending point. And Jesus says, your scriptures teach that. But then the last thing he says is, you don't know the power of God. Now, what does he mean here? Well, I've alluded to this Passage so much because it's so powerful for me personally. But when Jesus says, "Hey," uh, when they say, "Whose spouse will this woman have in heaven?" of all, all the seven of them, Jesus coming through, and Jesus says, "Nobody," because in heaven, he says, uh, "Nobody will be married." And every single time I've ever read that, I just imagine the crowds when Jesus says, "Hey, in heaven, nobody will be married." The crowds just going. Like, yay. Um, It just feels like we're going to have one shiny youth group forever. So powerful. But that can't be what Jesus means. Because he says, you don't know the power of God. Which means that what's coming cannot be less powerful and less intense than what we have in this life now. Look, the reason Jesus says no one will be given in marriage at the resurrection, you know why? It's because at the resurrection, you will be married to Him. Oh, the implications of this are so powerful for seeing Him. Because here's what it means. On the one hand, you know, this is incredible for your life. It's telling you that all your relationships are a shadow Look, if you look at the New Testament, this is really a profound thing about God. At times, God is referred to as our Father. At times, Jesus is referred to as our brother. Other times, in John 15, Jesus refers to himself as our friend. And then Paul, in Ephesians 5, refers to Jesus as our spouse. Now, why in the world uh, would the Bible do this? Well, one theory... Is because God looked it upon us and says, Look, I want them to know how much I love them and care for them. How do I demonstrate this? I know. I'll give them relational, different types of relationships that I'll come and embody in my own son that will teach them about what it's like for me to try to love and care for them. So that means with your father. Jesus wants you to know, look, this is how God wants to care for you. This is how God wants to protect you. This is how God wants to provide for you. Look, if you've got an amazing friend who who will just drop anything to come be with you, who who will listen to you talk, who will, you spend time with them and it feels like this should never end. Jesus is saying, I want want to be, I, I want you to know I will be more than that for you. I will be more than your best friend will be for you. Look, a brother, you, some of you have a sibling who, who has meant so much to you, who means so much to you, who you think, man, th- this person is my own flesh and blood. They get me. They're a part of me. They know my story. They are with me to care for my pain. They are with me to, to celebrate my joys. They have watched all these parts of my life and have been there for me that sticks closer than anything I've ever had in this life. And Jesus is saying, yes, and it points to me. And that's how I will care for you forever. Look, he's saying the best relationships that you have, look, you're not gonna get less than that in heaven. The best moments of your relationships are just foreshadows of something even greater to come. And nobody said it better C.S. Lewis when he said this, Most people, if you'd really learned how to look into your own hearts, would know that they do want, and do want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Now, I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking about the best possible ones. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. And Jesus is telling you in this text right here that that is coming. The other thing it means is in all your relationships and all your sorrows in life the best is yet to come look some of you have a loved one who you've lost and you're wondering if they're going to be in heaven and it's a real valid question and you know what this text tells you is it tells you you won't care And I know that sounds a a bit cynical and even a bit cold. But what it means is that who Jesus will be for you, what it will be like to know Him, will be so powerful, will be so intimate, will be so overwhelming that that relational category that you long to have continued and fulfilled in that moment, you won't even turn and ask. And it's not because of who this person was, it's because of how powerful he will be. And when the crowds heard him say this, they dared not ask him any more questions. What questions do you have? Look, the argument for this man is himself. Look at him and listen to him. If you know him, you will know life lasts forever and you will get the best to come. Let me pray. Father, your son is the ultimate argument. All the questions, all the things that we wonder, or there are real, real questions and real concerns in life. And you are tender enough to listen But Lord, I pray that we would listen to your words and we would hear the softness and gentleness of your promise that one day we could have full hope. Lord, banking everything to come, that at the resurrection, Lord, we, we we will taste the richness of the power of your love. It's in your son's name we pray.
0: Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.